From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew. Shane Jensen is here. Audi Weiner is here. Eric Bradlow is here. We are all here in some form, usually all of us, <clears throat> almost, almost always some of us, and we have been for almost the last nine years. We're going to be here for two hours. We're going to do two hours of sports analytics with a couple of interviews in our middle quarters. We are going to start with some open topics, open lines. Gentlemen, I'm pretty sure I know where we're going to start because I'm pretty sure I know what the most prominent sport is at the moment. But I'm curious, across the world of sports, what's caught your eye? I mean, well, I, go ahead, Shane. I was going to say, I mean, I, yeah, certainly football is, is kind of still predominant in my mind. Um, and it's pretty exciting that the Eagles are uh, in the NFC, kind of from a local perspective, that the Eagles are in the NFC championship game. Um, but I mean, it was a great, I honestly, I thought it was a pretty, uh, great weekend of football. I, I, I feel like, you know, it's, I'm not sure there's really surprising results going on, but I still think that there was enough kind of, you know, surprise in there. Bengals by a bunch over the bills. Yeah. The Bengals looking absolutely dominant over the bills, I guess is surprising. The fact that if you told me that the Bengals beat the Bills, I, w- I wouldn't find, consider that a particularly surprising result, but the kind of dominance right. that we saw, and perhaps correspondingly the dominance of the Eagles over the Giants was maybe a little bit surprising. Yeah, so, you know, when you think about the Eagles-Giants game, here's the way I would think about it. So the Giants were, I think, 9-7-1 and one during the season, right? The Vikings were essentially the same thing, but just masquerading as a 13-14 and 14, because they had won all these close games, had negative point differential or close to zero And so why don't we just agree that the Giants and the Vikings were both playoff teams, but weaker playoff teams. The Eagles are a very good playoff team when healthy. You know, lots of metrics have them as the best team. I think this is where we can also truncate the distribution. So the Giants, they lost by 31. Now, the Eagles play the Giants again. What fraction of the time do we expect the Eagles to beat the Giants by 31? I don't think that often. Now, are the Eagles at least a two-touchdown better team than the Giants? Probably, and probably on a lot of days. So I personally don't think I learned a lot from this game. I think the Giants were a slightly above-average team, and that's what makes the playoffs in, in the NFL. There's 32 teams, 14 make the playoffs. The Vikings are a slightly above-average team, and the Eagles are at the top of the distribution. So I hear you, and I think you're right, but that's not how we sounded on the show last week. Last week, we at least some of us were talking ourselves into, well, it's you know third time these divisional rivals. It's a whole mm-hmm. different game. You just throw the point spreads out with the divisional rivals, and we didn't get that at all. No, I, that's just, right. I, I was I was one of these people that I mean I think just from past PTSD we were expecting the Giants to perform better, um, but. You know, I, I mean, and I do think we have a lot. We did learn some. I mean, you know, I guess we learned that the Eagles are a better team. And we kind of, I guess, Eric's arguing we already knew that. We do. You yeah. do still learn something. I mean, you know, like having Jalen Hurts come out and look healthy and like productive and efficient in that offense is something we haven't seen. So to the extent that these teams are non-stationary, we learned a little bit more about where the Eagles are currently at. So I would just just elaborate on what both of you guys said and say, I think if the prior to the game line was eight and a half, thanks, Matt, for throwing that out. 
um, I thought it was a little lower. I wouldn't change it much after that game, despite their big victory, maybe to nine and a half or 10, only because that's a huge gap between teams up for two touchdowns or even 10 or more. That's a big, big that's gap. a college gap, not an NFL. Gap. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, I think you, I mean, obviously the Eagles were dominant, but uh, a couple of, you know, a couple of big touchdowns could have not happened and the game would have been closer. I mean, um, the giants came out in the second half looking a lot stronger for, for, you know, for maybe 10 minutes <laughs> and well, more, more I, over we, we tend to we tend to overreact and we're just we have to yeah. we have to almost always temper our reactions to any given weekend we have to almost always regress what we observe this weekend we're focusing our entire attention on this weekend and we forget that it's part of a larger distribution that we've observed and we we tend to overreact to what happened this weekend yeah and i, I mean also, i think you know I, I think that you know the eagles giants game perhaps is like one extreme in that it was kind of a dominance the entire game. There was really no point at which you felt the Giants were particularly in that game. And I want to contrast that with something more like, you know, the, the Cowboys 49ers game. You know, do we come out of that thinking the 49ers are a dramatically better team than the Cowboys? No, I mean, that one was even more driven. You know, like Dak had a bad game and, and, and you know, that was the result, you know, certainly the the results speak to that, but you know, a couple interceptions go the other way or don't happen. And that's, I feel like that result was even more kind of stochastic or like even less necessarily informative in a replication, you know, in a, you know, replication sense, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that let me me say the following Shane, maybe here's what I would think about it. I think the giants, what we found out about the giants is that their offense is no good. Actually, I'm looking through their season statistics they, they, they beat the Vikings. They scored 31 on the Vikings, but the Vikings literally statistically, I think, were the bottom two defensive teams in the league. The Vikings were not a good defensive team. The, the Giants scored 21 on the Titans, 19 on the Panthers, 16 on the Cowboys, 20 on the Bears, 20 on the Packers, 24 on the Ravens, 23 on the Jaguars, 13 on the Seahawks. So they basically didn't score above 20 to 24 points against any team this season. And the good teams, they actually scored 15 or points less. So I think what we learned is the Eagles have a good defense. If they played again, I don't know. I thought the Giants' defense was better than it was. I didn't think the Eagles were going to score 38, but I was convinced the Giants weren't scoring more than 14 to 17. So how do you, how do you integrate this for this coming weekend? And by the way, I'm curious. I mean, the Eagles are hosting it, which is a lot of fun. You don't often get a championship game in your hometown. Eric, you were out there last weekend, I believe. Are you going to go out again? I mean, it's a game. Yeah, I am indeed. Yeah. Audie's Adi, trying to jump in here. Yeah. I just want to think about, ask you guys how you think about collecting data from football games in the sense that do you treat the plays if you will, as IID, not IID draws, but almost independent draws, or do you highly autocorrelate them within the game? In other words, are you looking at the the Giants' performance vis-a-vis the Eagles as kind of one draw of randomness, or are you looking at as many draws throughout the game, or how are you cutting that down? Because my general view is I think that within-game performance is actually highly correlated. Uh, and I'm not sure why. I don't, know, I don't play enough football to, to, to understand like why that is. But it seems to me that 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 that's, it seems to me a good way to to model the data, and I'm wondering whether that okay, so let's, what, what let's you to the extent take that. that I I think about IID um, is I do think about certain types of situation, like I guess across drives is the closest way I would think about yeah, cross drives, yeah. And so, like I think about you know performance in similar situations, 
across drives like red zone efficiency. I think, you, you know, it's not like, you know, in the times you got to the red zone, every red zone possession, I do kind of, I guess, consider independent. So, of the so red. Do you mean uh, I third, to down, third down conversion, you know, is something you can kind of look at like the district, you know, yeah, the, so the point I just, of that. Audio, I ask you a so, so let me just make it clear. I want to ask, wait, wait, ask a clarification question. Yeah. Do you mean the positive result on one drive has an effect on the positive on the probability of a positive outcome on the next drive. Well, is not causally, not well, causally, but, not but causally. observationally. Absolutely, no, right. exactly. that's what I was trying to pin these guys down to. That's it's not momentum. Momentum. It's, it's, that's it's, momentum. It's, it's not momentum. It's autocorrelation. So uh, you make it's a momentum. draw. You make a draw from the, uh, of the team strength parameter for that day, yeah. and that makes every play within that day autocorrelated. Not because yeah. not because of momentum, but it's a draw. So, in other words, uh, following up on what Shane said, if the team didn't do well, um, I mean, you can do you can do it. You can you can shake up the order of the of the plays of the drives. It won't matter. That's not my point. My point is, if the team you has cannot. got a good day on a, and and therefore they're scoring at uh, in the red zone. That means that they're going to more likely than their, than their baseline rate to score in the red zone later. Or and it's not because of momentum; it's because of something that comes to the game on that day that's car, common to all the plays on that game. So this is a big conversation, and more than we should bite off here at this particular moment. But we should come back to it because it matters for how we do our work. And in football, we're really constrained by our sample size. We don't have enough data. This is the real challenge. For football, we have 22 players on the field and, and only, you know, 150 plays in a game. So and now you're telling us they're not independent. So they're not 150 mm-hmm. observations. So it's a real challenge, I would say. Um, but of course, we're also working now with even more granular data. And that's like actions within a play. And so we're finally getting, you know, even more data than the 150 plays. But we still have these autocorrelation issues, the non-independence issues. Eric. One quick thing. Um, so in, literally in my PhD class last week, uh, in marketing, we talk about what's called structural state dependence versus spurious state dependence, meaning is what someone bought in the last time period, does it affect their probability of buying in the current time period? If it's something momentum or structural versus is just autocorrelated errors, which is spurious state dependence, what you described, I don't even if you know this, Adi, one of the classic tests of this is called a reshuffling test, where you reshuffle mm-hmm. yep. the order and you see yep. if the effect still appears. Permutation test. Um, right, exactly. I will just say the following. I believe that there's structural state dependence. I actually don't. Of course. It's a, it's, I don't. Of course, I do. Yeah, I do. Um, I don't believe that it, there's just this game level ability and then everything else from that. But either way, it's so interesting because everything you talked about is exactly what we talk about in marketing. Because let me just say one more sentence, because if it's structural, I should get you to buy in the last period because there's more customer value going forward. If it's spurious, then giving you a discount to get you to buy has no impact because I can't control the future behavior. Right, so how, we agree, is, Adi. We agree. I just want to say from, from a football fan, it's huge because basically you're saying, does one game give you a lot of information or very little? Absolutely. And, uh, and that's what it comes down to. And, and Odd, you're basically saying it gives you less than you think because it's yes. it's not 150 plays. It's, it's, it's some fraction of that because these things are correlated, which is interesting and valuable. And again, I think it means don't overreact. But I'm most <laughs> impressed that that Eric has created another domain in his life where he can talk about momentum and he can catch <laughs> it in very, he can catch it in very sophisticated terms. Appreciate okay, that. Guys, let's move past structural state uncertainty, whatever the phrase was that 
that structural versus spurious. Yeah, structural versus spurious. And talk about the AFC because it has one of the most interesting and vexing and unfortunate issues, and that is Mahomes' injury. So we've got Cincinnati with a surprising win against Buffalo. We've got Kansas City with an unsurprising win. Over, I don't mean that they, the win was surprising, Shane, necessarily as much as it was the size of it. Um, and it was classic Buffalo conditions. It just it was it was rich for Buffalo to finally keep on pushing, and it didn't quite get there. Anyway, since he goes on. Um, as has been pointed out, three of the four semifinalists are the same as they were last year. Cincinnati, KC, of course. And the one missing one is the Super Bowl winner, which had a historically bad follow-up season. That's right. The LA Rams. The LA Rams were are are not in this final four, and because they had a historically the literally the worst follow-up season to a Super Bowl. Okay, the big question: Cincinnati, Kansas City. Where are you guys on Cincinnati's Kansas City? Let me give you a few basics. The I think the line opened minus one or so for Kansas City and it has minus, actually moved. it was minus two and a half. It was minus two and a half for Kansas City before the Mahomes injury. If the, in their future projections, if the, before the games were played. Oh, okay. So I'm just saying about the betting line for the game. I think started a, a, approximately a very small margin for the Chiefs and has moved to a a relatively small margin for the Bengals. I believe it's like two two and a half now. Cincinnati games in KC. Um give you the massive Peabody ratings, which have been updated just in the last hour or so with Cincy flying up, you know, to basically be tied with Buffalo at second, about a point behind Kansas city. That's assuming. How did your model handle high ankle sprains? I'm curious. Exactly. I was going to, that's a, that's a full strength (laughs) Mahomes. So you have to subjectively adjust that point. So it's a point on neutral field and that may be, you know, two and a half, three points on a home field. And then what is it with the high ankle sprain to your best quarterback? I'll give you one last observation. I traded some texts with Rufus and I got the following information. How much is, how much is Patrick Mahomes worth? And one, the simplest way to think about that is how much worse is Kansas city in our model without Mahomes, right? That's the simple question. And I believe Rufus said seven and a half. He had him for seven and a half, seven and a half. Is that right? Maybe yes. Seven and a half points without him. So how much does that ankle sprain move from, what fraction of seven and a half are they giving up? Yeah. So I'm curious. I think it's going to be, it's, it's notable. I think this is going to be Mahomes's first time, certainly in the playoffs playing as an underdog or Kansas city's first time under in the Mahomes era where they've been an underdog. Most likely right. they'll be an underdog. But also, in, also let's, let's note, isn't this, is it their fourth or fifth AFC championship game in a row? It's just, fifth in a row. It's, it's their fifth in a row. Ridiculous. ridiculous. Another How? crazy one. Mahomes has never played a road playoff game. Is that right? That's right. Let me just comment on a couple of things that are funny, uh, Kate, as well. So, of course, were Andy Reid to lose this, he'd be one and four with the Chiefs in AFC championship games. What was he with the Eagles? One and four? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's just one one comment. Um, Yeah. Second second quick comment. Um, I think the Bengals have beaten it. I mean, as as I'm sure you guys know, Mahomes has never beaten the Bengals in Joe Burrow. Um, I'm not convinced they were winning before he got injured, given what I saw from Cincinnati during the game. And um, I think if Cincinnati were to win the game, we have to start talking about the Bengals as being, they will have gone to two straight Super Bowls. Um, There's no reason two to me, two years in a row is a long period of time in the NFL. And I think we have to talk about the Bengals as being the AFC favorite going forward. If they were to win this game. Yeah, man. But, but Eric, you say based on what I saw from him last week, how much would you put on the week before 
with and, and maybe I mean week 17s are, are now week 18s are a little funny, but we were so skeptical they didn't look good finishing the season. And so again, back to the overreaction thing. I would love to. I wish Mahomes wasn't hurt. Pretty I think good I for a my, while now. I mean, Cincinnati. No, they, they've, they've won the whole second half of the season. I get it, but 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 we the rhetoric on this show two weeks ago yeah. was, man, that odd defense looked like shit. Can you believe the Ravens with Huntley did what they did? They came so close, yeah. and now we're like, oh, hold on, they just rule the world now because they beat yeah, Buffalo yeah. by three. Um, I'm just saying, temper, temper, temper. But I think all that goes out the window with the high ankle sprain. I think we're gonna. I think people are gonna talk themselves into, well, Reed's gonna scheme it up, and well. You know, Mahomes' EPA per drop back in the second half was surprisingly good and all this stuff. And I think, come on, simple story, simple story. The best player in the league for seven and a half points has got a high ankle sprain and mobility is a part of his game. So we're at, we're at best wiping away the, the power ranking advantage and the home field advantage. We're at best neutral and probably worse. And I've definitely got the Bengals. I don't like it, but I've definitely got the Bengals on this one. I think yeah, the, only, the only thing I was going to say is, I think what also the game showed is if you can't really run the ball effectively against the Bengals, you have a challenge because they have a great pass rush. Their defensive secondary is good. And you're right. I, I hadn't thought about the Ravens game, but, you know, I'm, after that game, I thought the Ravens were the better team. I thought the Ravens should have beaten the Bengals in that game. I do. Okay. So just in the last minute or so, any particular matchup, of course, you know, San Francisco, Cincinnati has got quite a tradition in the Super Bowl, but we, as kids, oh. we had a couple of those. Um, what else would be fun to see? Obviously the Andy Reed bowl would be a fun yeah. one. No, that's right. And, and I think, you know, I mean, I'm really intrigued to see in the NFC championships game. I mean, we saw what the Eagles can do against, you know, kind of a, you know, relatively good, but not great, defense they're going to be hitting probably the best defense in the league now besides maybe themselves so i see seeing how the defenses operate in the nfc championship game is super intriguing to me the mm-hmm. afc one of course as you sort of said it's almost it's it's a little bit you know kind of unfortunate that so oh, much of our kind of thinking about that game does hinge on mahomes's ankle for sure for yeah. sure um, anybody got the Niners? Everyone's sold on the Eagles. I'll take the Niners. I'll take Niners Bengals. I'm, I'm looking at a 1982, 1989, whatever it was, a couple of those Super Bowls. That's a coin flip for me, I think. I mean, I'm going to take Eagles just because my heart, my heart, but like that's right at 50%. I'm going to take the Eagles too and point out that I have a friend from San Francisco who won't come and watch the game because he's scared of Eagles fans. I'm taking the Eagles. On that note, on that note, we'll wrap up Q1. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second quarter of this week's Wharton Moneyball. Q's two and three are increasingly becoming our interview segments, as they used to be. And as they are this week, we have Micah McCurdy back on the show today. Some of y'all might remember, or you might know, Mike is a hockey guy. He runs hockeyviz.com. Terrifically interesting and insightful data visualizations from the world. They happen to be from the world of hockey. They're interesting and insightful regardless, but they happen to be from the world of hockey. Mike is doing that stuff full time. He's got a math background, more math than you can imagine can be stuffed into one young man. He's got a lot of math stuffed in there which also means that he's rigorous in the way he does this analysis. And he's a good interview. We've had him on before. We're glad to have you back, Micah. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon to you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Delighted to have you. 
you know, we, we got it. We, 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 with these sports that we don't talk about every week and with the sports that we're not watching quite as rapidly, we, we tend to be slower in getting smart. We, we learn some things for some half hour and then we forget some things. We move on and we get distracted. We got to get quicker reps and more reps. And so we're getting some hockey reps, trying to get smarter. We got a little smarter with the World Cup late fall because we did a few in a row. And, and I think of that. Now, Shane's over there. Shane's smart in hockey. He grew up on hockey. It's in his mother's milk and all that stuff. But the rest of us, were slow. And so, Micah, you're part of our educational enterprise. And um, appreciate your being up for that educational mission. Um, listen, before we drop in, why don't you give us a sense of the NHL? We're approaching halftime. We know that the uh, Bruins have been doing amazing things. That's kind of the piece of the league that have caught our eye to this point. But before we drop into your stuff and, and advanced analytics on hockey, what, what's your sense of just league-wide? What are some of the top stories that we should have our eyes on? So the Bruins are definitely one of them. Um, they they are improved to an extraordinary degree from last year, and which is real surprising because they were pretty good last year too. Um, you know, certainly not cellar dwellers by any means. Uh, so exactly, but they have a new coach. They have a radically improved goaltender. Um, Patrice Bergeron, one of the better players in the league. He's a real analytics darling. Um, but he's old enough now that people keep saying he's going to drop off. But then one of the things about old players who drop off is that they do when they do and not before. And while they don't, it's fun to watch them still be good, especially because they're all so familiar. Hold on. So we, we had, we had, this was years ago. See if you guys remember this years ago, we were talking about age curves in some sport. It's like running backs in the NFL, maybe. And I think it might've been. that. And if you look at the age curves, there's this gradual, you know, the, the, in aggregate, there's this gradual decline, but we were talking to someone who built those curves and say that masks reality, which is that there is no decline for a long time. And then people just drop off. And it's only an aggregate that it looks like this slow thing. Is that a fair characterization in general with Asian performance or at least with hockey? Is that what you're saying? Yes. And, and that, and you got to be, I mean, you always have to be careful with averages, you know, how is that average averaging process working? And, and one of the things that it masks that it can, in, in hockey, just like other sports is that elite players, especially don't follow the same curves quite so tightly. They, in particular, once they start to decline, they generally get to a point where they say, okay, I'm done. And they just quit. And, and so they're generally still good. You know, it's very rare to see the very best players continue to play until they are, you know, only fourth line caliber, only, you know, good enough for a little bit of time. The elite athletes especially like to go out on top. And if that means playing until you're 38 and then you're, and then all of a sudden you're done, then that's, you know, that's what you get. And you average that in and you try to, you try to account for that statistically as best you can. You know, that's censorship in your data. You don't, you don't like that. Um, <laughs> but you can, but you can, I mean, it's not insurmountable. It's just a pain. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you see, so the, the slow, gentle curve is sort of the truth in a way, if those players continued to play. Um, but the trouble, of course, is that if you're the coach of that player, you know, or you're the fan of that player's team, the, the question is more immediately like, how can we convince him? to keep on playing mm -hmm. how can we give him the rehab that he needs how can we give him the maintenance days that he needs how can we give him the motivation that he needs to keep on playing so rather than you know the the age curve itself is one thing but it interacts with selection and in this case selection just means is he gonna play yeah okay at all? 
Okay. Let's try one other age question. I'll ask on behalf of Eric. You may not have anything on this, but I'm going to try a, a Bradlow theory of aging. Eric, correct me, please. Eric's theory of aging is that they never lose the capacity for their peak performance, really. It's that it gets mixed in with average and below average performance. They're only intermittently as good as they used to be. Do you have the ability, do you have the ability to observe anything like that or test that in hockey? Have you seen that? I can't, I haven't tested it directly. Um, although I've, I've tried, it's a surprisingly difficult thing to pin down when you, you know, get down to brass tacks, but I believe it in particular because I've seen it in the lower levels also where you get, you know, even ordinary players get these little flashes where they play extremely well. And, and it's tempting to say, oh, you know, oh, that's his real talent. But really the real talent is the full distribution of all of the things that you can bring. And so the peaks are not generally going to change. And so, you know, you might see some schmuck put out an incredible move and you think, why can't he do that all the time? Well, the reason he can't do it all the time is that if he could do it all the time, he would be one of the best players in the league. Mm -hmm. But, but it's not a question of ceiling. The, in some sense, it's a question of repeatability. You know, the best players are getting there all the time. And as they decline, they get there less often, not the, the peaks themselves are not what's declining. And so, so and you have, a, you have a, a floor of the same quality. You know, you, somebody makes a terrible gaffe. I mean, even the best players can make terrible gaffes. Just the okay, best so players can very rarely. It really connects nicely to a minor theme on our program about intrapersonal variation, intraplayer variation. The world is kind of obsessed with inter-player variation, and we, we're always rating people and ranking them and distinguishing them and categorizing them and tiering them. But we underestimate the within-player variation. And you're saying, look, everyone's got this within-player variation, and really what you're talking about is the same support, but just the distribution kind of shifts one way or the other. That's great. Yeah. Shane? I had kind of a question sort of talking about kind of more aging, like trajectories and how to kind of predict them or model them. You know, one of, one of the kind of mainstay methods or his that that we've done for this in baseball has been kind of attempts like Pakoda, where it basically finds like essentially you cluster like if you are want to predict a particular player into the future you kind of find you cluster them you cluster all players over over baseball history and you find the five or ten closest matches in historical data to the player you're interested in. And then you kind of use what those players did moving forward as your prediction. And that, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's more sophisticated stuff that's done in general with that, but that's been kind of a, a very mainstay sort of method, I think, for doing predictions in baseball. But underlying that, of course, is that baseball, you know, baseball has done its best, or certainly baseball fans kind of think of baseball as, as a sport that's relatively unchanging so that, you know, historical, like, you know, what, what players did in the eighties is relevant to what players did now. And so I guess my question is, in your opinion, looking at hockey, could we do something like Pakoda for hockey or ha does the sport change? Is the sport changed too much era to era for kind of the, for eighties players or seventies players or even nineties players to be relevant in terms of predicting into the future for current players? So I think I, I have a very positive and a very negative answer for you at the same time. Um, one, the first positive is that my most recent research actually is about aging curves and how, how they're different for different skills. So rather than look at how players age, I've been looking at how specific skill abilities change. You know, how does the shooting ability of a player change over time? And one of the things that I've discovered is that the peak ages can be surprisingly variable like five six seven years apart for different skills uh mm -hmm. not 
not too surprisingly, the ones that peak earliest, you know, it's, it's a common nerd refrain that, that player age peaks are earlier than you think. And, you know, you should be thinking of peak ages like 22, 23, 24, what? not, not 25, 26, 27, not definitely not 31, 32, 33, like some NHL coaches what? say, but that's, but of course it depends. Well, one of the things I've been getting into is, is that true for every, for every facet of play? And, and it turns out that it's not that, that some of the traditional skills, some of the traditional like things that coaches say about peak ages are true for some of the skills that coaches care about most. Um, so for instance, player defense in the NHL tends to peak a little bit later, more like 28, 29, okay. whereas player offense tends to peak a little bit sooner, more like 23, 24. And then something like player shooting or rather um, player penalty drawing is an even better example, tends to peak much sooner, like 1920. Get out of here. No, no, much earlier than I expected. And, and of course, I, I had to do a lot of work to be quite sure that, that I was sure about that. But one of the things that, that one of the sort of guiding thoughts that I came up with afterwards is that it seems as though the things that are based on foot speed peak very early. Mm-hmm. And, and the things that rely very little on foot speed that are much more about, about intelligence, mental intelligence, and, and mm-hmm. being able to make reads peak much later. Mm-hmm. And so things that require coaching more coaching i mean everything requires some coaching but things that are more coach driven tend to peak later and things that are less coach driven that are more just you know do you have the fast twitch muscle fibers doing exactly what you want them to do in your body they peak un- unsettlingly or super interesting um but but you guys should be thinking about what how what's the what are the dimensions of academics and how do they change over time but we'll save that conversation we're gonna go apparently my footwork peaked way long ago (laughs) yeah yeah well i I, I thought i'd throw out an observation that um uh i i spend some time talking to esports um teams and by 18 they're done it's ridiculous (laughs) i mean you become a coach at 19 17 is your peak um, and then 18, you're washed up and 19, you're a coach. And, and that's when, and actually one of the, one of the observations there was, uh, is that in order to become a, a sport, we're having a big debate at, even at, at places like Penn, I mean, is esports a varsity sport? Can you recruit? Some colleges are recruiting on it and they wonder. Um, and, and, and for me, the question is a, a sport has to be rich enough to gain experience and get better when you gain it. And, and that's what you're essentially telling us. So much positions in hockey are really about getting better at the thinking part of the sport as your body might not quite be as fast, but you look better and better because, because of those, those components. Yeah. And there's a, there's a sports science aspect too there, right? Where if you, you know, you want to talk conditioning, you want to talk strength, you know, you need your grown up body in the, the full athlete sense of it which you don't have at 18 when they let you vote. You know, you, you, you've got to get a little bit further along and weight training, strength training, that stuff is a little bit better understood by sports science people. Um, and so, you know, that, that dovetails in too. You want speed, it's one way. You want strength, you want another thing. And each sport has its own, and not just each sport, within each sport, you know, each facet has its own mixture of, we would like, you know, strong players, smart players, fast players, the players with great hand-eye, like whatever it might be. You're going to have to look at them all separately. So, Michael, let me ask you a question uh, related. Just try to operationalize what you said. Let's imagine I looked at some outcome variable, like player value or expected win probability added or something like that. And I was to run, let's say, almost like an analysis of variance, trying to understand which are the big effects, which are the small effects. What you're talking about now is some sort of either age by skill or age by position interaction effect. 
Or if you want to bring IQ into it or intelligence into it, maybe the player was never a smart player. So there'd be a three-way interaction between age, IQ, and skill, which is, you know, as long as you were smart, then age doesn't affect you that much in this position. But if you were not that smart, age might. Can you give us a sense of how big an effect we're talking about here? Like, would I rather have Wayne Gretzky at age 39 in a skilled position or someone that's the median of the distribution at age 25? I'm just trying to get a sense of while there is variation of age by position, how big an effect size are we talking about here? So one of the, on the one hand, is very difficult to tease apart, you know, that like on a purely mathematical level, there's a lot of directions to go with that. But one thing I noticed doing all this recent aging work is that really good players, one of the things that made them unusually good is that they were able to extend their careers if they wanted to, which they didn't all, by rearranging the way that they played. And and you would see serious drop-offs in certain skills as they just gave them up for dead and big improvements late in careers as they acquired skills that they didn't previously have that weren't previously important to them. Such, such, and, as, such um, as. So the... So Jerome McGinley is a great example. He was a great shooter throughout his career, and he avoided the shooting-related decline that you see in a lot of players um, and did so by sacrificing some defensive ability, uh, which would which would not have been permitted to a player who wasn't a marquee elite player like him. And, right. and of course, he had a lot of defensive ability to sacrifice because he wasn't, you know, there are players who are who are putting up lots and lots of points but are defensively weak. You know, Alex Ovechkin is a fantastic player and he fits that description extremely well. And, you know, and again, was never quite in that mold, even though he was a sniper. And, and so he rearranged the way that he played so as to, to prolong his career with a specific skill. And I'm sure that was done in tandem with coaches. And on a different note, somebody like Sidney Crosby, his career, he's sort of in the twilight of his career now, sad to say. And it's remarkable how good he still is, but there's still an obvious decline from how good he used to be just that mm-hmm. much more stratospheric. Uh, and he has done the opposite where he has taken a little bit out of his offense and improved himself defensively because it means he can do it while skating a little bit less. Huh. And, Remarkable. And this is really, really neat. And I don't think I've, I'm sure it exists in some sport, but I've not heard it talked about in this way. And it just feels so general. I mean, it's, it's impossible to listen to you and not start thinking about your own life and your own profession and it's such a natural thing to do over the course of life. Well, Cade, what's interesting about it, given how much you know, you've invested in people analytics and skill development to me, is that what you really need to know is some sense, what's the derivative of skill development as a function of age? Because like maybe I'm, you know, I've always said, this is one of my, our stories, Mike, I'd be interested in your thoughts. When I was at ETS, smart people know, smart people also have a higher ROI of their time. So good players are like, I could put a lot more effort at age 35 into still being good at this, but it's futile. But if I put more time in this, it's actually going to give me a higher ROI. Do you actually get a sense that better players know, oh, I'd be better off trying to optimize this factor of my play than this factor of my play? Or are the better players just more able to reallocate because they have more dexterity in some way? Oh, that's yeah. another that's another possible reason too. It's not that they're or, smart or because, about it, just they're able to. Or or you know, there's more patience in the system for them to do so. Like you mentioned, Drake. Right. You for like sure. only only maybe a marquee player would yeah. be given kind of the 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 you know kind Great of structural patience by the team, by the coaching to kind of reinvent themselves. Yeah, I think I think that last point is is the one that's most important. Um, but it also comes into 
comes into the second point there too, that, that, that one of the things that makes the best players the best is their ability to not simply do what they can do, but also to think about it. And, and they're quite different skills really. And, you know, and being able to, to sit down with a coach and say, you know, I'm feeling a weakness of the following type in my game. I'd like to reinvent somehow. I'd want to, you know, what can I do? How can we redo this? You know, there'd be plenty of players who wouldn't have the guts to even open up that conversation with their coach, let alone the rope to go down it. And, and so you, you need to have that ability also, that metacognitive ability or meta, just meta ability to look at your own play and say, you know, I'm noticing a decline. A lot of players, even very good players, but not top tier players, they, they don't even have those conversations in their own minds with themselves. They just play as best they can every day. And once it starts to break, they go home. You know, and that's, like there, there's some players who play in an extremely instinctive way. And, and for a lot of athletes, that's very natural. Just practice the life out of it, get good at it, make it so that you can't possibly do it wrong until you do it wrong. And now you're done. Right. And, and that's why you, and it's funny from a mathematical point of view, I kind of curse the legends because they're the ones doing weird things, making the model assumptions go wrong and <laughs> making the curves do weird things. And, you know, changing themselves in strange ways. Headers and 80, man. Headers and 80 is a real problem for... But it's fun. You know, it's That's like as a, as a fan of a sport, as a, as a scholar, I enjoy it, even if oh, it's, it's difficult. Terrific. terrific stuff, Micah. Listen, why don't, why don't we drop into your website real quick and just and explore a little bit. And I know we've got questions and, and maybe your site will help us do it. For example, Shane was... was yeah, was, no, so I mean... You know, he wants to talk know, about like, XG... Yeah, I mean, honestly, there's so you, your the hockey biz site is so rich in information. It's almost you know you can almost have overload just kind of uh, happening upon it. But I mean, I the one thing I kind of gravitate towards usually kind of just sort of like kind of to check in on what's going on in hockey is you've got kind of this the five by five expected goal kind of comparisons for again comparing at the team level essentially expected goals for and against you know as a scatter plot. Um, and I think that that's kind of, you know, a, I, I, I'm used to sort of seeing these in like NFL, I'm used to seeing these plots totally. every week where we look at kind of offensive and defensive performance. And, you know, of course there, you know, you can kind of divide up into quadrants and you want to be in like one of the good, you know, I love how you've labeled the quadrants here, by the way, you know, where, you know, obviously if you're high in terms of expected goals for, and low in expected goals against you're in the kind of good quadrant, and if you're high in low in expected goals for and high in expected goals against, you're in the bad quadrant. But then you've also got the high in expected goals for, high in expected goals events, which you call the fun quadrant, you know, and then the the the, the dull quadrants kind of you know low in both. So let's just want real quickly, of, Shane, let me just populate those for, yeah. for folks for real quick. So my my savers are are almost the most extreme on the fun, but not that extreme. Minnesota looks like extreme on the dull. You're seeing the Blackhawks and Anaheim in the poorest. And I'm surprised. I think everybody would be as much as Bruins have been receiving attention. Yeah. That Carolina and even the Devils are out there at or beyond Boston in the good quadrant. Yeah. And that's basically that's the hey, That was going to be my question about this. Like what we're seeing this particular thing is that given how outlying Boston has been, in their kind of outcome, at least. I mean, they're having like this historically great season, whether they can maintain it or not. Maybe this gives some suggestion about whether they can maintain it or not. Why? Why? I, I guess I, I expected to roll into this plot and see Boston 
you yeah, know, right. right, you know, as, as the most extreme point in the good quadrant. So, so and, and they certainly are like the lead in terms of actual going for. So in terms of actual goals, I think they would be. But this is expected goals. So maybe this gives us an opportunity to kind of why is expected goal? Why is the story a little bit different when we look at expected goals? So the, the number one thing is that the reason why we sort of we collectively being all of us nerds doing hockey work got into expected goals at all is much the same as the rationale why it caught on in other sports uh, is just because the what you do and the results you get in sports like I don't know what what the sort of general name is for all of the sports that involve putting the biscuit in the basket like you know <laughs> basketball the well in fact basketball is not a great example but certainly soccer and hockey together are the two main ones invasion invasion sports is that right that the years ago? yeah and basketball certainly is included there too where you where you do get the same kind of thing where you know even though there's no goaltender in basketball but you still have you know a quality of offense and then you have a quality of efficiency of converting that offense into what you actually want which is goals or points and and so there in hockey the part of why that's such a big deal is that goaltenders at every scale, both short and long, exert such an incredible pressure on the game results, even though there's such a small fraction of the roster of the teams they play for. And so, so one of the things you're seeing, I, I briefly alluded to it earlier in another question is that Boston, I mean, they're, they're only third in the league in an expected goal share, which is extremely strong. Um, but with so many wins, you'd expect them, like you said, to be yet higher. And part of that is because they're also, in addition to being near the top with skaters, getting a historically good performance from Linus Olmark, their starting goaltender. And you, we're, we're sort of more accustomed to really good goaltender performances dragging poor or medium quality teams to, right. you know, to looking like they're better teams than they are. But you can get the same effect um, when you have that same push coming for a team that's already a marquee team at the top of the league. Now all of a sudden people start talking about franchise records. Micah, update us on how persistent we should expect good goaltender play to be. Because historically, I've thought of it almost as, well, if your guy's hot, he's hot, but don't count on it lasting. As long as it's hot, you're going to win. But So have we gotten better at evaluating goaltender performance in a way that allows us to hang more persistent stats on them? A little, but mostly we've gotten better at evaluating it in a way which makes us realize just how not persistent goaltender ability is. Okay. Okay. And and the number of, you know, if you look at a lot of shots and it might feel like, like it's a bunch, but in terms of like, statistically, it's just not that many shots. You know, if we were getting hundreds of shots in a game rather than 50 at the outside, you know, then you might start to say, well, we can, we can take this performance and we can expect it for the next little while. But when you're flipping coins that, that rarely, even just pure variation, a good goalie can let in four out of 50 and your host, you know, and you, you're just more or less guaranteed to lose a game, even on pure randomness. And okay. so that's unfortunate in a way, but, but in some sense, like I, I try to tell myself that, that a certain amount of variance is my work to do. And a certain amount of variance is my work to say, if you like, you know, the, the, what I'm trying to measure is what variance is there in the sport. And not all of it is is just my failure to do my job. Some of it is is like the hardcore of what's actually there in the sport. For and sure. it's right. difficult to be certain, and one doesn't like to you know pat yourself on the back. But I, I think I'm getting to the point now where a lot of what is left in goaltender performance, at least relative to the data that I've got about what goalies are actually doing, is is getting about as good as it can get. 
Okay, so but Micah, this this leads us at, at, at just you've, there, so there's much more to the story, but from what little we've we're gathered so far, it leads us to say we expect Boston to quit doing what they're doing soon because it, it doesn't seem sustainable. Especially you look at the chart that Shane brought up and Carolina. You, you got to say you know going forward, given those expected goal performances, we'd expect Carolina to outperform Boston. But I had this sense today thinking about Boston because every week we come on the show. And someone's got a new stat about how absurd Boston's record is. It's like every week you expect the, the trend to, to flatten. And then the next week you expect the trend to flatten. And the next week you expect the trend to flatten. And it keeps on not flattening. Well, there's two things there, too. Um, one is the goaltenders. But the other thing, of course, is special teams, which is not listed there. You know, I, I think it's important to hive off 5-on-5 play from special teams play for obvious reasons that the rules are different. But okay. also, you know, the Bruins are exceptionally strong on special teams. And, and part of why part of why they've been able to put together so much is that, I mean, obviously, goaltending is more important, which is why I mentioned it first. But then the special teams performances are also so strong that, you know, that and their their penalty differential is also good. You know, you when you get that that confluence of having very few weaknesses, the then you you get into this place where you're setting records left, right and center. And of course, special so, teams in hockey is, is more important than it first appears. Uh, it's something like. A, a really hefty chunk of the goals are scored on special teams. Well, I was about to ask, how should we weight the two? Because you can pull up the special teams chart, the same scatter plot that Shane was describing for special teams. And in fact, Boston and Carolina flip. And Boston is the one that's out there in the in the closest to the good corner. And our Maple Leafs are not too far behind them. But you're saying, look, there's this whole other part of the game we weren't talking about. And here's the question. How much weight should we give it? It turns out a lot, not just maybe the minutes don't reflect its actual impact because so much more of the, the scoring is disproportionate to the minutes. Yeah. And the, the leverage, the like per moment impact on the game is higher, considerably higher. And, and it's not just that we were talking earlier about interaction terms, the, the, the goaltending and the special teams terms interact with one another more tightly than, than they do with five on five play. In, in fact, five-on-five five play and special teams play directly. Into, you'd think that they would interact a fair bit, considering that after all, it's the same guys, you know, <laughs> mostly, who go out there. But in fact, it's quite, quite different. You know, individual player skill, you know, at five-on-five five defense and four-versus-five defense is, is remarkably uncorrelated. Huh. They're, they're, they're different. They're, this is one of those per, persistent surprises of mine. You know, there are different kinds of ways to play defense with different assumptions, and some guys are good at one. Some guys are good at both. And some guys are good only at the other one. And similarly, you know, and goaltenders are called upon differently and with more leverage on the power play, sorry, when they're shorthanded, than they are at five on five. And so the same skill might manifest a different impact on game outcomes. And in fact, this is just sort of a tangent, but I went down a rabbit hole on last summer trying to redo a huge chunk of all of my models to weight higher leverage situations more on the on the idea that in higher leverage, maybe that would reveal more of a player's character, whether, right. whether they were stronger or weaker. And it turns right. out it's not true. <laughs> it makes all the predictions worse. Yes. Good. Well, now you know that you've established that. So it's a little I, unsatisfying I, though. You really want, as a fan, you really want the higher leverage situations to tell you more about the players. But I hear you. I, but see, that's, that's the beauty of empiricism right there. You, you have all the intuition and it just doesn't bear out. And so that's good to know. Micah, that, I, I've been curious. I mean, so much of your site is essentially descriptive. 
but you've clearly got the analytics chops to do predictive modeling. Is Are there corners of the site where you're providing predictions on how seasons are going to play out? Do, are you running a sim based on these more fundamentals about teams? Do you have, is that part of what you do or might it ever become something? There are, there is quite a bit of predictive stuff. Um, one of the curiosities is that the, like I said, I make my living from the website. And so you have to pay a subscription fee to get at some of it. And, and as a matter of mostly so I can keep track of where I put what the predictive work is what you have to pay for. Yeah. Sure. And so if you just want to see how the Bruins are doing, you know, those graphs we've been talking about before descriptive stuff, just, this is what's happened presented to you in a way that might be a little bit more unusual or maybe a little easier to understand, you know, that's all free. That's the lost leader for the website, if you like. But then if you want to say, well, how are they going to do now? You have to pay me money. Good. Good. Um, right. And so on the on the front page there, there's that future section, which has all of those breakdowns. Maybe you're a subscriber and you can access them or not. But for instance, you can you can see you're talking before about, you know, Carolina or Boston. Who do you expect to actually yeah. um, finish higher? And so, of course, looking just at those stats, you know, with no goalies included so far, you might expect that they'd be on similar terms. But then you look at the actual projections and you see that Boston are running away with the league. They in fact, they've built themselves such an incredible cushion. That yeah. even if you expect Olmark to return to his previous form, or even some sort of average of his form this season and uh, and last season, they they are almost uh, uncatchable. Okay. Good question. Okay, so, but, oh, but so that 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 tells us a lot, and it also points to where we can find out more, which is helpful. And it makes sense that you have that given all that you're doing. So it's good to know that's a good resource. Eric, we're gonna, we're we're moving towards wrapping up, but take us there. Help take us there. Okay, just a quick. 30-second question. Let's imagine you look at the, the graph that you just showed and imagine it didn't match well with wins, which are, of course, an aggregate summary measure of lots of things. Would you start to worry about whether it's the construct validity of what you've measured or the predictive validity? Because it, it, at some level, these you know goals for, goals against should match towards wins at some level. And if that correlation is lower than you'd observe, what would you take from it as a mathematician? I would, I, on the one hand, I always try not to take any lessons like that from one team. The, a single team can always be weird in any old way. Just like a single player can always just be in, in bizarre and hard to describe. But I would look at, at calibrations for an entire league at a time. Like I'd right. look at aggregate measures for all 30 teams, sorry, for all 32 teams. Yeah, that's what I was referring to. Yep. Yeah, exactly. and, and if I saw, if I saw, like, so I'm making aggregated stuff where I'm, like looking at the calibration of the simulation model, I have two, one for each game and one for the whole le- for the season. And so if I see mismatches coming out of that, then I think there's something wrong somewhere. I got to go fix it. But I almost never look at a single team and say, ah, that team's not as I expected. I must've done something wrong. But that, that takes fortitude. I mean, that's, that's, that's a sophisticated perspective because the human instinct is, Oh, here's this anomaly. I must have something. Is, is it an anomaly or is it my model wrong? And you're saying, look, I don't even try with the individuals. That's sophisticated. I do. I do occasionally work a, a little middle path where I look at something about an individual team and I say, is this telling me something general? Yeah. And if I can isolate something, because specific teams will show you specific facets of what you're doing. And if I can say, ah, the Bruins are doing this, that shows me that the thing that they are doing is something that I'm modeling incorrectly for the whole league. Then I'll look at that and see if it's true or not. But I never take a single team prediction and say that by itself is enough to say that there's a mistake. Okay. Well, good fun. Very good fun, Uh, Micah, not just on hockey, but on modeling in general and on data viz, I have to say some super interesting 
data visualizations and a variety of them. Um, you can see more of Micah's work at hockeyviz.com. You can also follow him on, twi on Twitter. Great follow on Twitter. Micah Blake McCurdy or the handle at ineffective math, at ineffective math. I, I wasn't even researching you, Mike, and I knew that you tweeted about the Stars game. I was thinking about the Stars game because I knew you were excited about it last night. You can get those kinds of insights too, by the way, on Twitter. Thank you for being here with us. We'll look forward to talking to you more down the road. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure as always. Absolutely. Micah McCurdy. And that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Moneyball, the third quarter. Another interview segment here in this quarter. We've got the whole crew to help with that interview. Eric Bradlow is here. Shane Jensen just sliding in. Coming in hot, Shane. Coming in hot. Just arriving via Zoom. Adi, peacefully, thoughtfully here, thinking about what's going to come up in the next half hour. You guys can join the conversation. We love that you... We love it when you do. Hit us up on Twitter. Probably the easiest way to reach us is Twitter. At WMoneyBall is our handle there, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports, sports analytics. We take ideas, criticism, praise, love, whatever you got. We love to hear from you on Twitter. You can also hit us up on email. We have a mailbag there. Our email is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything you send us. We love to hear from you, and we get as much of it as possible on the air. Rolling into our second interview of the week now, we're delighted to welcome onto the show Justin Bergner. Justin is an investment management analyst and a portfolio manager. He is a Wharton grad, even though I think he'd be here regardless of his Wharton gradness. It's not, it's not nepotism. We promise it's not nepotism. It's kind of coincidence that he's a Wharton grad. It's not a coincidence that he shares an undergraduate institution that doesn't need to be named with Audi. That's, in fact, it's some networky thing. They, they found out about their stuff, and they have some common interests. And so Justin is here to talk about a book he is publishing this spring. Interesting book. We thought you guys would enjoy talking about it. We knew that we would enjoy talking about it. The book is Solving the Price is Right, How Mathematics Can Improve Your Decisions on and Off the Set of America's Celebrated Game Show. Sound like fun? We all grew up watching that thing. We're interested in behavioral biases. We're interested in math improving lives. So we're interested in Justin Bergner. Justin, good afternoon to you. Appreciate you making time for us. Thank you so much, Cade. And thank you, Eric, Adi, and Shane as well. Well, Justin, we're glad to have you back at Wharton in a way, virtually, if not uh, physically. And um, we're looking forward to chatting with you a little bit. Tell us how this book came to be. You're in the financial services business wouldn't necessarily expect you to write a book about the prices, right? It sounds interesting, in fact, fascinating, but how did you, how did, what's the, what's the origin of this thing? Sure. Uh, that's a great question. So as mentioned, I, you know, got an MBA at Wharton and I've been in the investment industry uh, since then uh, from 2005 onwards. When I graduated Yale uh, in 1998, I had considered applying to graduate school to get a PhD in economics to study game theory. I was an economics and math major. I focused on game theory within the realm of economics and probability theory within the realm of mathematics. And I decided not to go to graduate school, but one to two years after college, I had this idea about writing this book. 
on the hold game on, theory. Hold on. So one to two years after college? So Yeah, so over 20 years ago. Gracious. All right. You'd have made a good a good academic, Justin, working on that time, David. Yeah, thank you. I, I it would have been an alternative pathway in life that I'm sure I would have enjoyed, but I've enjoyed the the pathway I I went down um, independent of of academics. So I had this idea, which I guess you could say was a consolation prize to myself for not choosing to go to to graduate school and get a PhD in economics. But it's also an opportunity to share my love of game theory with the world okay. and to show how we can apply math in more areas than we realize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did you settle on the prices right as your laboratory or your or your data set? Well, I love The Price is Right. I grew up watching it as a kid on, you know, snow days and vacations. It was effectively my introduction to games of chance and probability as a kid. And the amount of math and strategy underlying the show is so broad, mm-hmm. so much more uh, multifaceted than what you would find in any other game shows that, you know, are on the air today. Mm-hmm. Well, does that make it hard to for contestants to improve. I mean, I think of Jeopardy, for example, we've had guests on here from Jeopardy and I feel like it's, it's almost like people have figured out optimal play in Jeopardy and, and it, and it, that a new strategy kind of dominates. Price is right. has been around for 60 years, 70 years. And have, have we, do we see improvement over time? I mean, this could affect how you decide what eras to sample. I know you picked a couple of years, but in general, do we see that kind of, collective learning in Price is Right like we do in Jeopardy? I would doubt it. It's not a question I explicitly explored, but I don't think that the Price is Right, you know, necessarily necessarily chooses contestants based on some extraordinarily high level of IQ going into the show like they would in Jeopardy and those contestants preparing accordingly. I hope my book will make contestants smarter on the show, but I, I doubt that we've seen a lot of learning over the years. Okay. And the games vary more. So it's easier to optimize within a more narrow range. Shane. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, the, the way I kind of just thought about that question as you were posing it, Cade, is uh, there's at least two ways in which, you know, the price is right differs from Jeopardy. One is that the contestants are different every week. So you can't really look at a person's, you can't look at learning, on the individual level, obviously, and Price is Right in the same way that you can in Jeopardy. Um, and also the games themselves, one of the parts that makes it fun is that there's not just knowledge involved, there's stochasticity, there's randomness involved in both kind of what you're trying to guess at as well as kind of like, you know, things like Planko where, you know, literally chips may or may not fall the way you want them to. Right, right, right. Well, listen, Justin, you dug into this stuff and and you look at, each of the different games, you look at the different stages, you're doing an interesting job of laying out biases and, and identifying where some, in some sense, inefficiencies occur. Can you tell us what, what you found most interesting in the book? What are some of the things that might have surprised you or you think are some of the strongest results? Sure. So as you mentioned, there are multiple parts to the show. There's the contestants row bidding where contestants bid on item up for bids. Who's ever closest without going over gets up on stage to play a pricing game. Three pricing games are played. The wheel is spun in the showcase showdown to see who goes to the showcase. That, you know, set of contestants row bidding and pricing games and showcase showdowns repeat in the second half. And then we have the showcase with a large set of uh, prizes in the first and second showcase that one contestant hopefully wins. What surprised me most 
in terms of contestant shortcomings and biases was the major failures in contestants row bidding or shortcomings in contestants row bidding in terms of contestants not bidding strategically being over anchored by earlier bids and bidding too low or too conservatively that would be the major area that i would call out and then secondly in the showcase um where each of two uh, i guess individuals who's made to the showcase in the show bids on a set of prizes the second area that I would call out is the anxiety associated with bidding on the showcase, which caused the second bidder on the showcase to underperform versus the first bidder on the showcase. Is that right? We, we, see, we see choking? It's interesting. Um, we can come back to contestants row bidding and focus on the showcase first. But what you saw is that the first bidder or the bidder on the first showcase won 52% of the time. And the bidder on the second showcase won 42% of the time. And 6% of the time, both bidders went over and no bidder won. And so, in effect, the second bidder, the bidder on the second showcase was choking to some degree. He was gaining anxiety because of the bid on the first showcase. And he wasn't giving himself enough cushion on the second showcase and risking going over. So the second showcase went over 30% of the time. If it was the lower price showcase, the second showcase resulted in overbid 45% of the time. And that led to a meaningful underperformance of the bidder who was bidding on the second showcase. And Justin, there's no structural advantage to going first. It's, it's, it's purely a performance issue, not a, not a structural game issue. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the higher price showcase showed up you know, more or less equally between the first and the second showcases. If anything, the second showcase should have a better outcome because the bidder on the second showcase, right. if he sees a, a weak bid on the first showcase, he can react and bid very conservatively. If he thinks he sees a good bid on the first showcase, he can bid you know, more aggressively and try and bid tighter versus the actual price. But Justin, okay. you let you let out one other structure, left off one other structural part, which is another reason this second person, remember, the first showcase person is presented that showcase and has a choice to bid or pass. Now, there's two aspects of it. One could be, I see the first showcase and I don't really want that stuff, so I pass it. The other could be, I don't think I can bid that well on it. Therefore, I pass because I have no knowledge on what the price of a boat is. So in some sense, there's also an information asymmetry between those two players because the first person has to like it and has to believe they have an accurate bid. Is there any way to take that into account in some way? Because that's what I've always thought has been, mis- has been not looked at by the showcase. If I see a boat, I don't know the price of boats. Even if I want a boat, I'm not bidding on it. Right. Um, no, I mean, you bring up another interesting point. I mean, the first, uh, the winner going into the showcase who has the option of whether or not to bid or pass the first showcase may pass the first showcase because he doesn't see himself being able to make a good bid. In fact, most people didn't like showcases with boats and 90% of first showcases with boats were passed on, um, in favor of the second showcase when a boat was presented in the first showcase. Hard for some people to work a boat into their life. They may not have a life conducive to a boat. Or they'd love a boat and they have no idea what it costs. And I'd rather win a car than not win a boat. Right. You haven't seen boat advertisements as much. Exactly. Right, Justin, you mentioned the first stage as well. And of course, there's, pro- there's probably more data on the 
on the first stage. So how would you characterize bidding behavior in that first stage? Sure. Um, thank you, uh, Kate, for that question. Just before we switch to the bidding, I wanted to point out that there was this London School of Economics study that showed that teams that take penalty kicks in soccer matches second, uh, they're the second team to make penalty kicks. They only win the penalty kick shootout 40% of the time. And the team that goes first wins 60% of the time. So this phenomenon of anxiety from going second is actually observed in other forums besides the price is right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But switching to contestants row bidding, which is a very interesting subject matter. So the goal in contestants row is to bid closest to the actual retail price without going over. And that means your goal is to really maximize your probability of getting closest without going over. And that occurs by having the broader range of the relevant portion of the number line so as to enhance that probability. So when all bids are placed, if your bid can win over a $500 range versus winning over a $200 range, assuming that's a relevant range of the number line, you're better off having that $500 bandwidth to win versus a $200 bandwidth to win. So there are very few contestants that thought that way. In fact, most of the early bidders, so the first bidder and the second bidder, they just made their best point estimate bid. Ironically, you're better off making your best point estimate bid as the third or the fourth bidder, because if you make a really good bid as the first or the second bidder, someone's going to come along and potentially just clip you by bidding $1 or a few dollars over your bid and effectively marginalizing your bid, which happened mm-hmm. a tremendous amount. As we know, the fourth bidder strategy is obvious. He or she should just come in and bid $1 above whatever prior bid seems most relevant or bid $1 if he thinks the other three bids are too high. So that was one really um, interesting dynamic that I focused on, which is how can contestants create a broader portion of the number line of which they can win over versus just making a point estimate. This- so, so Justin, is, is, is it fair to think about that as simply as strategic behavior and they're just not thinking strategically at all? And if that's fair, this is a pretty simple strategy. There's just one level of strategy to go through here. Can we characterize, sometimes in, in, in experimental economics, we start characterizing the heterogeneity. So it's, it's, you can say broadly, there's inefficiency here. People aren't enough strategic, but we know some of them are strategic. Can you characterize like the percentage of contestants who do play strategically versus the percentage that don't do not? That's a really good question. I think I'll have to save that for my sequel because um, that was a topic that I didn't explore, but in general, the first and second bidders almost, or at least the first bidder, who had the most to gain by bidding strategically mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. always placed a bid that was simply his or her point estimate. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Justin, let me, let me see. So help us figure this out. What should you do? So when, so for our listeners, the point estimate would be your best, uh, it probably minimizes the mean squared error, the, the distance between your, your bid and the, and the actual value. You obviously don't want to do that, but what you're talking about is something very strategic. You want to kind of force the other players to potentially go over. Um, and if your point is a good estimate, then they either just clearly go low or high or just $1 above you. So what should you do? So let's say something is 
I mean, I don't know. You have to give an example. Give me, try to give us an example of what a smart opening bet would be and what a poor one would look like. Sure. So the the game theory discussion of contestants for a bidding in the book starts with the simplified version of the game. So you have four bidders and they're bidding on a prize, which is a random number between zero and a hundred. Okay. And they're bidding in similar sequential order as they do on the price is right. And they all have the same uniform probability distribution for that number between zero and a hundred. Well, the Nash equilibrium backward induction Nash equilibrium solution for that game is for the first bidder to bid about 78, the second bidder to bid 56, the third bidder to bid 34, and the fourth bidder to essentially bid $1 or infinitesimally close to zero. And that would result in the first three bidders each having a 20, just over 22% chance or two-ninths chance of winning, and then the fourth bidder having a one-third or 33% chance of winning. So I threw a lot out there. Intuitively, why is this the case? The reason it's the case is because the earlier bidders are trying to avoid being clipped by the later bidder. So in order to avoid being clipped, the best way to do that is to start off high so you push the other bidders lower so they don't have an incentive to come above you. So you're effectively self-limiting the portion of the number line that you can win over so as to avoid being clipped. And that's the Nash equilibrium solution for the simple game. And where it gets even more interesting, which brings me to the second major shortcoming of contestants, is there was an extraordinary degree of underbidding in contestants row. So the bidder with the highest bid won 53% of bidding rounds. And if the fourth bidder, who won 41% of the time overall, tabled the highest bid, he or she actually won 64% of the time. And the reasons for that are are numerous. We can come back to them. But where this ties into the um, strategic play is because of this propensity to underbid by contestants in contestants row, there was even more of an incentive for the first bidder to take that, you know, really high, but within reason bid on the number line and then force the second player lower, the third player even lower and the fourth player, you know, towards that $1 bid. Is there, is there a modification if it's like a normal distribution on the air? So the way I'm thinking of it is that there's a minimum and a maximum price range that people have in their minds. And this Nash will give you uh, a uniform distribution on that. Your uncertainty is it's somewhere between the minimum and the maximum. Uh, what, how would it be different if it were not? It was maybe concentra- more concentrated around a a particular. I guess you can invert the 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 cumulative distribution function and figure out the optimal. So how it works? In effect, yes. Um, it the answer shouldn't change based on a different probability distribution, but it will change to some degree or it will make it even more advantageous for the later bidder if the different bidders have different probability distributions. And that's where the math gets sort of too tricky to actually solve it outright. And you have to sort of take the math that you apply to the simple game and then sort of qualitatively analyze it in the context of these bidders who may actually have different views of what the product is worth. So the simple game is most relevant where you have a very homogenous, well-understood product, like an iPhone. An iPhone is very sort of representative of this 
simplified contestants row bidding game because most people are going to have similar views as to what an iPhone should price at. It strikes me that the, the this additional rule they have in this game about go over and bust is kind of necessary to add the the complicated. It adds an interesting. It, it adds a, it introduces the possibility for some of these behavior biases. So the, it it drives risk aversion to push prices down, for example, and adds that that whole wrinkle. And in general, this it feels like you've you're you're using the prices right as an experimental laboratory and kind of sussing out some of the behavior biases in an interesting way. What is the sample size here? Like how, how many contestants do are in your data set? Sure. So I watched seasons 47 to 48 in their entirety, which was 356 episodes, because I wanted to have a large enough data set and capture two seasons in case some of the dynamics changed. So that actually corresponds to 2,136 contestants row bidding Right. All right. That's a big, that's a big sample. That's great. Yeah. So this is, I mean, look, the, the it's for decades now experiments in the wild have had, have had privilege in, in academic circles. It's better to do the experiments in settings that are real, real consequences, high stakes. And this is definitely that. What, 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 what do you come away from this believing about Here's a big question about human rationality. Are people smart or people not smart? I mean, how representative is this sample? How much can we generalize? It's a good experimental setting in terms of incentives. What do we know about how the, the people are selected and how much can we generalize? From this? Sure. I mean, look, I, I think that humans have varying degrees of, you know, intelligence when you stick them in a strategic game or set of games like those underlying the price is right. Um, you know, I think that when once things get complex, humans quickly fall short of being able to adapt. So the first bidder in contestants row bidding has very little idea what he or she should do. So they just table their best point estimate or their best point estimate with some cushion mm-hmm. for going over. You know, similarly, in some of the pricing games, which comprises that discussion comprises more than half of the book, you see some of the more complicated strategic games leading to contestants coming up short almost universally. So uh, to pivot, you know, there's a a famous pricing game called Cover Up, where you have two numbers for the first digit in a car, three numbers for the second digit, four numbers for the third digit, five numbers for the fourth digit, and six numbers for the fifth digit. On your first try, you select one digit from each of those columns corresponding to the numbers in the car. And then if you get one or more number correct, then you cover up the ones that were wrong and you take a different number from the column and replace it with the number that was wrong. And each turn that you get at least one incremental number correct, you can cover up the ones you got wrong and play for another round. And this is a famous longstanding game on The Price is Right. And what you find is that contestants know the first digit with certainty because you're talking a $20,000 car or a $30,000 car. But it would be in the contestant's best interest to purposefully miss the first digit 
so they could have an extra turn at the game, assuming that they get one of the second, third, fourth, or fifth digits correct. Uh, I was just thinking before you said it, Justin, they better do that early because they don't want to do it late because you may never, it's like, why don't I, you know, use my, you used the example of soccer. Why don't I keep my best uh, penalty kicker to the end? Cause he may never get a chance, but I agree. As long as you get that first number wrong early, it makes sense because it gives you at least one more round late. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and none of the contestants did that. Like ever. I've never seen that in all the times I've seen that game. I've never seen someone intentionally get the first digit wrong. Yeah. So that was perhaps like the best example of like 100% irrationality. And it just shows that when you introduce like a out-of-the-box solution to a probabilistic game with time constraints, you know, human beings are just not very well equipped to cope in that environment. But if you look at, you know, the showcase showdown where contestants spin the wheel and the first contestant has to decide after his or her first spin whether to, you know, take the first spin, call it 60 cents and spin again or not. And then the second spinner has to decide, you know, conditional on having beat the first spinner, whether to stop, you know, at 55 cents or not. In that case, contestants made pretty good decisions about whether or not to spin again based on the underlying game theory solution. So that's a more straightforward probabilistic game. And even though contestants aren't doing the math in their heads, they can sort of work out, you know, rough approximations and make the right decision 90% of the time. Interesting. You're attributing it to complexity and that makes sense. I'm, I'm also curious how much familiarity matters. So the, the showcase showdown is something that happens every show, whereas the pricing games vary show to show. And so to the extent that people prepare, and that's a question I'd be interested in, do you know what preparation looks like? To the extent that they prepare, everybody's going to give some thought to that, whereas they may not be thinking about cover-up because they may not expect to get it, or maybe only one of, you, you know how many games there are. What's the chance that they get any one pricing game in that middle stage? You're exactly right. I mean, the showcase showdown is perhaps the most visible part of the show. Um, it's the part of the show where people have probably seen the largest sample size of mm-hmm. participants. Um, mm-hmm. But it was interesting when um, I was bringing the book to market, I spoke to Roger Dobkowitz, who was a former producer of The Price is Right during the end of the Bob Barker era. And, you know, we discussed some of these shortcomings and yeah. he was at that time sort of the unofficial resident in-house math expert, except, except when they needed to get outside consultation from an academic. Yeah. And, you know, I discussed these findings and he's like, yeah, that's exactly what I saw during my you know years as producer on the show, you know, in cover up, no one ever figured out intentionally miss the first number, get yourself an additional try at the card, increase your odds of winning from, you know, 35% or so to 45% or so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Um, Okay. Listen, Justin, thank you for taking time to be with us. Uh, Good luck with the book. The the book again is the Solving the Price is Right, Solving the Price is Right by Justin Bergner. It's scheduled to come out in March. You can pre-order it now on Amazon. The subtitle is how mathematics can improve your decisions on and off the set of America's celebrated game show. Justin is trained in uh, economics, especially game theory and probability, pretty well tooled.
to pull some lessons from what he sees from over 2,000 participants over two years on what must be America's oldest game show. All right, listen, Justin, good to talk to you, man. Good luck with the book over the next couple of months. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Just Justin Bergner, and that is Q3 here on Wharton Moneyball. We still have one quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the fourth quarter of Wharton Moneyball. The last half hour, our two-hour show. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, as we typically do these days. We're back to Zoom after being in person last week. We're back to full strength after being three-quarters strength last week without our compadre, Adi Weiner. Adi's tough to pin down these days. He's always out about doing something, somewhere, something interesting. Too busy for the crew, but he's back one show, one show. (laughs) Well, you do a good job of making the shows from your far flung travels. That's the, that's the most impressive. You're, you're a good dialer in her. All right, guys, we've got a pretty full period here to close the show. We've got an open agenda. We've got a few items I know people want to talk about. I I think number one, we need to honor the Australian open is rolling into its final weekend. We've got semis locked up on the women's side, I think, at least. Um, and one of the semis. One of the semis only. Okay. So, Eric, what's the rundown down there, literally, with the Australian? Well, let's start first with the women's side. So, the women's side, it's the same, you know, quote unquote bloodbath that we've always seen. There's one top 10 women's seed left in the final eight, which is Arana Sabalenka. She's a very talented player. She's the number five seed. Um, she's playing an unseeded player, Donna Vekic. Um, on the other part of the quarterfinals, Karolina Pliskova, who was as high as two in the world at one point, is the 30 seed. She's playing an unseeded player in the other quarterfinals. And then in the other semifinals, we have uh, in the women's other women's semifinal, we have the 22 seed against the 24 seed. So either the 22 or 24 will be in the finals. If by some reason Sabalenka is defeated in her part of the draw, it will either be an unseeded player or the 30th seeded player. So the women's draw, again, there's a big uniform distribution across the top players, even though Iga Swiatek is the dominant number one. She's not a good hardcore player. So I think what you're seeing is a lot of surface differences among the women. Like for the men, you know, you can kind of count Djokovic, Nadal, and the time when he was playing Federer, et cetera. With the women, there's a lot of surface differences because of the power and the way they play the game. Um, on the men's side. Oh, oh, oh real quickly. On oh, the women's sorry. side, how, yeah. how much of the bloodbath, you said typical bloodbath, how much of that's because of how closely grouped these players are? And how much of it would be different if they played best three or five instead of two out of three? If there, if there were true differences there, playing a longer match would reveal those differences more reliably, but it's possible that the differences just aren't that, aren't that marked on the, on the women's and the women right now, there have been years, there have been eras where the differences were announced. Yeah. yeah. Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett were much better than everybody else. During Serena, the year. Serena, was much, I was getting to Serena. Obviously Serena was much better than everybody else. We're just not in that era right now, uh-huh. not on all surfaces. And so um, I don't think that the, the Talent differences are that big in the top part of the distribution. And also, as you said, Kate, they play two of three sets. And so that also adds some further randomness uh, to the to the uh, 
endeavor. And so that's why on the women's side, I think it's, you know, this is our standard thing that we're going to see. I think, you know, when do we see, given the randomness and the close, close distribution, why don't we see Coco Goff bubble up more often? Why don't we see more American players bubble up more often? Why, why does the U S perform so poorly in women's tennis? In this well, the number three seed on the women's on the women's side, Jess Pagulia, just who, matter of fact, happens to be the daughter of the Buffalo Bills owners, um, by the way, as an aside, um, <laughs> she just lost in the quarterfinals. She was a heavy favorite given she was the three seed. Um, okay. Women have performed well. Um, this just doesn't happen to be one of the years where women are performing extremely well on the women's side are okay. performing extremely well on the men's side, however. We have two men, Ben Shelton, NCAA champion, and Tommy Paul, who are both in the quarterfinals. So there will be one of those two in the semifinals. Wow. Now, of course, they're going to play the Djokovic-Andre Rublev winner. So that's not looking extraordinarily Eric, real quickly, what are the world rankings of those two Americans in the quarter? Um, I can just look quickly. Ben Shelton is or seeds. ranked. Seeds even. Oh, they're not seeded at all. No, no, no. Ben Shelton is ranked 89 in the world. And Tommy Paul is ranked 35 in the world. So neither of them is seated. No, no, no. They're both unseated men in the quarterfinals. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the men's side, look, right now, I think we talked about this last week. Djokovic started the week at like minus 118. At this point, even with, I guess it's eight players left. Um, I don't know. I have to look at the betting line. I'm guessing he's minus 300, minus 400. I mean, he's got to be an overwhelming favorite at this point given there's no one left. The only person left who you guys probably all know who was beating him two sets to love in a final last year in, the, in a major was Stefano Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas is in the semifinals on the other side of the draw. If, you know, Djokovic plays him in the final, obviously Djokovic is going to be heavily favored, but not by a minus four or 500, not by that biggest gap. Okay, got it. All right. Well, it's been relatively uneventful. I mean, it's relatively unexciting, I would say. There just hasn't been – they haven't been the big matches. The, 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 the injuries and the men's draw has been weak enough. Um, it, it, again, it just I, – I end up wanting this kind of adjusted uh, – Grand Slam adjusted for competition. Yeah. Well, look, the number one man in the world, Alcaraz, didn't play because of an injury. Nadal played but was really injured and so got beaten in the second round. So right. who has, I mean, I'm not, I'm not taking it away from it. it's happened to Nadal and Federer too, but right. Djokovic is going to win this major beating who yeah, exactly. this is an adjusted one. This, well, I know it counts as one, but it's not one. Uh, we Come don't, on. we're not going to give him one. We need to give Wharton Moneyball currency for these grand slams. We can adjust them. I, I like there we go. I'd say, you know, he's about like 0.6 or so this time around. Um, all right. In the other, in his cousin sport, the other country club sport, We've got some interest, an interesting storyline in golf. John Rahm won again this weekend. I think it's four out of six. Four out of six. That's an absurd streak. You don't see that in golf. Well, you probably saw one pretty recently. Maybe last year, didn't Scotty Scheffler? You wouldn't think Scheffler won four of six somewhere in that range? Not only that, he won a bunch in a row, but um, that and the Masters. They're both un- they're unusual. I suppose they're less unusual yeah. since they both occurred in the last year. But I would say they're markedly unusual. I went to Rufus Peabody of uh, of mostly football betting fame, but he's really he, he does as much on golf as anything, and he's and he's a real quant in both those domains. So I asked Rufus what he could tell me about this run that Rom has been on. You know, what can we say about it? What do we know about? And he and Rufus says, look. It's the victories that are getting him the attention because the actual performance isn't, I mean, it's great, no question, but it's not, 
it's not peak. I mean, Tiger Woods, so how do you, how much you measure these things? So he ends up throwing me some numbers. He says, look, uh, over the last 27 rounds, Rom's gained 3.84 strokes on the field. 3.84 is his average gain over the field over the last 27 rounds. And that is super impressive. That's great. But we need some context. Like how does that compare to other points in his career? How does it compare to other players? And so what Rupus did is he ran a little summary for me. I threw it in the rundown at the last minute of the best 27 round runs in his database. And this is, looks like it goes back to the early two thousands or so. And it's fun to look down the list because most of the rows are tiger. But what I really want to do is point you to the numbers. So how does 3.84 compare to what the best have been over this 20, you know, 15, 20 year period? Tiger's best was over five strokes gained on the field for 27 rounds. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. We're talking about 2008, early 2008 through, through mid-year. But Tiger has... <laughs> the top 12 and, you know, 20, 18 of the top 20 or something. And, and maybe 30 of the top 40. I mean, it's unbelievable how much he dominates. Well, that you know, Cade, what's happened in golf. And this is the complaint of the players that the season has gotten all year round. And so this is the silly season. They call it in golf. They all count. They're all wins. But on the other hand, you know, this isn't the time of the masters. This isn't the time of the U S open. This isn't the time of the PGA. This isn't the time of the British I'm not saying John Robb's not a great golfer. He is. But let's be clear. He hasn't won four of six in April and May. Let's see him do that. Then all of a sudden, this will have to move up the list. But in some sense, he's the top player. Like McElroy didn't play this week. And a bunch of those golfers are also in live golf. But like McElroy didn't play. Scheffler didn't play. So the field is not as strong as it would be as you get closer to the major season. That's all I'm also coming. I'm not trying to take away from winning four of six. You're still playing very good golfers, but you're not playing the elite fields in April, May, June, and July. And that's what these guys are gearing up for. Matter of fact, Tiger, who, you know, maybe he'll win another major. I don't know. Trust me, Tiger right now is targeting the masters. He could care less what happens in the next three and a half months, three months. It's April, mid-April, late April, and the masters tees off. That's what he, Roy McElroy, all the top players are gearing towards. They would trade all these John Rom wins in January for one win in the Masters. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point, and it's 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 the same point we're making with the Grand Slams and Tennis Indigo. We can adjust these victories for for competition, but it's also exactly it's related to Rufus's point, which is the performance is strong, but it's not it's not like it's it's not quite as record setting as it looks from just the victories perspective right. and that would follow if the competition hasn't been as high i can tell you that from a from a from a from a world rankings not from the official rankings cuz those are funny they 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 are built to induce participation but from a statistical perspective the rankings you can look at someone like data golf I mean, Rufus has them, but he's not going to share them with us because he bets off of them. But Data Golf is one of the more sophisticated outfits out there with publicly available data. And their index has ROM as number one in the world at plus 2.57 against the average PGA field, plus 2.57 strokes per round. It's a pretty nice gap. That's a lot. Big gap. Um, but it's not a gap over number two by much. Rory McIlroy right there. You just said Rory wasn't in there. Rory's 2.45. So there's a gap after those two. It drops down to Scotty Scheffler, 
Xander Schauffele at 2.15. There's about a about a half stroke, 0.3, 0.4, 0.5 strokes difference per round between one and two and three and four. But just to say, Rom is on top of the world statistically right now, but McElroy, despite all that Rom has done, McElroy is pretty much right there. Uh, the, the other thing I would just say quickly is that um, the Varden Trophy, which is given to the golfer with the best stroke average, um, I think I've, I'm just counting Tiger Woods won like eight to 10 years. McElroy has won. There were years where I remember where like in 2007, Tiger Woods' stroke average was 67.79. As I remember, the closest golfer was in the 69. So like he had a stroke. You talked about a 0.1 average difference. Tiger had a stroke, stroke and a half per round. So, I mean, let's also, I like the idea, Kate, because you've helped me calibrate being even 0.3 or 0.4 greater than the third and fourth golfers. That's nice. That's nice. (laughs) that's nice no i mean he beats him by a stroke he beats him by a stroke in four round play tiger beats him the best players in the world by five or six strokes in his peak fine fine and we we were privileged to to be there for pete tiger woods because we saw as great a golfer as ever walked the course but does it spoil us now do we rank everybody we diminish everybody else you know i mean is there anybody we saw more at their peak I mean, who else would you say reaches like in our lifetime? Who is in that level? I don't think. I mean, even does Michael Jordan? Is Michael Jordan? Well, I mean, you, you know, in terms of like kind of being heads, Gretzky. Gretzky, I was a little late to Gretzky, but on a team that, outcome level, Brady, but like you know, on an individual performance level, not. What about Mike Tyson? I don't know enough about yeah i mean on an outcome level the guy had quite the rock unbe- at his best he was unbeatable i mean it's just unimaginable when he finally did lose it was unimaginable but anyway anyway i wish, I, I wish you would allow me given we just talked about tennis i wish you allowed me to talk about the big three or serena williams but serena williams i would put at that level but if i wish you'd let me take the big three on the men's side because you know it's those hypothetical questions if let's say nadal and federer never lived wouldn't Djokovic have like 50 great slams right now and vice versa and then we'd be talking about them as the michael jordan or the you know wayne gretzky of tennis not that we don't appreciate them but the three of them have eaten up 63 majors if the other two weren't there one of them might have 50 to 55 yeah, yeah I guess it's, it's, it's sort of like it's almost self-norming in the sense that like tennis, it seems less impressive because there always seems to be somebody standing, you know, like it's a sport that's more dominatable or has been historically more dominant. Like what Tiger did in golf, part of its uniqueness is that usually golf is not dominated in that's that right. way. That's Great right. point. That's right. Or hockey, you know, or, you know, whereas, whereas tennis, I mean, certainly those guys are probably historically the best of the dominating players, but it seems like it's almost every generation is dominated by one or two people. in That's interesting. Right, right, right. All right. Well, speaking of generational domination, I'm sure there's lots of exciting names on the hall of hall of fame battle ballot. That's closing in baseball this afternoon within the hour. Who is it guys? Who is it generationally dominating that we're going to reward with this year's hall of fame induction? Well, let me just jump in and give you the summary. Right now, we got two candidates who are on the verge of making it. They have more than the 75% needed in the public uh, ballots that are currently counted. It's Scott Rowland at 80.3 and Todd Helton at 78.3. Now, here's the problem. Every year, for, not for everyone, but usually, you and both these candidates in the past have publicly done better than the private. 
And Remind us correct. the difference between the public yeah. and the private. And, and, and there's roughly difference. about half the ballots in right now, Adi, half the ballots. Yeah, in. about half the ballots are in. The, and, and so the problem is, is that how close, I mean, it's a selection bias problem. And typically the ones that aren't publicly counted tend to undercount. Both of them in the past were undercounted by about 5%. You mean undercounted? You mean something? I'm not that. not undercounted. Sorry about that. They they under like, if you will. They they don't vote for the the uh, the person uh, at the same rate, and it tends to be a little less. So the problem is, is that damn, we're talking like right on the edge for both. Well, of they them. both need roughly. I mean, if we just round them and say they're both at eighty percent and half the votes are in, they need seventy percent from the rest. They they can afford a ten point or less differential between the public and private ballots. That seems doable to me. Well, but I mean, maybe I'm misreading this table, but I, I, there's a row here for what the, the difference between the private and public for these players in 2022 was. That's right. So you have to be and careful. Because, like for Helton, so, it's like you said 5%, for Helton, it's like 13%. No, 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 no. It's that's the difference between private and public. What you want to look at is the difference between the actual and the pre-results. So the actual and the pre-results um, was oh. about 5%. So in other words, and that that gives you the residual. Right. So and that's really what we're looking at Um, in order for him to make it. His residual has got to be less than three point three percent. The difference between what he's got now and what actually happens. So, Adi, does that mean the pre-results is what we've been observing? Pre-results, pre-results only. They're a mix of both public and private. Yes, they're a mix of public. It's what people it's what people have shown. Some are anonymous. Right. Uh, okay. Some of them are are real. Um, it's it's basically what we are able to count right now, and and versus what actually happens. And okay. it tends to be a, a gap, uh, not always, but usually against the, the the player. So someone has to clear. It's like Mike Messina, who was at seventy eight point five, and he just ba- barely made it. Uh, Eighty is going to make it. So I would. Have, the real question is, what are we going to do, guys? What are you going to guess? And I would say the highest likelihood is one makes it and one does not. But I don't know which. <laughs> so, so about to pick a single outcome, I'd probably pick the outcome of neither make it, but the best combined outcome is one makes it. If you, if you understand what I'm trying to say, I, I do. Um, I would say well, talk, before, I, before, before you do predictions, I'm curious, does, does the vote total stay with these guys in any way, Eric, you make an annual pilgrimage to, 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 I started to say Canton, but that's the NFL. Cooperstown. Cooperstown. So I can imagine in a fully informative building that they would actually give like the vote total on the plaque, you know, somewhere in the little booth, you would get, this is a 92% guy. This is a 75.1% guy. No, none of that. No, well, it's not true. Some people, if you're voted on the first ballot, sometimes it's mentioned on your plaque. First ballot. Um, Sometimes if you're in the, in the elite air, which means greater than 95% voting total, they'll put that on your plaque. Really? Like if you're Tom Seaver and you get like, if you're Mariano Rivera and you got literally 100% of the vote, then that's on your okay. plaque. Okay. Trust hold, hold, hold me. On, hold on. Give, give us Very, a sense. As you talk, we talk about the inner, the inner sanctum or the inner ring. Um, maybe this elite 95% thing is an objective uh, criteria for that. How many, how many players are in the Hall of Fame and how many of those are in this 95% plus range? I don't know the exact number. I think there's something like, I remember, here's what I do remember. The last time I was at the, so it was last year. I think it's an easy number to remember. I thought there were 333 members of the Hall of Fame. That's why that number sticks in my mind, that there were okay. 333. Okay. And I'm guessing that the 95 range, percent range, can't be more than about 15 or so. I'll tell you why. Jeez. 
I don't think Ted Williams got 95% because there's some writers just didn't like him. Yeah, I, was gonna say, I mean, yeah. you can't talk about someone yeah, more top tier Hall of Famer than Ted Williams. It was so funny. I, I smiled when you said, here's a nice objective measure. You mean an objective yeah. calculation based on completely right. subjective opinion. That's right. Correct. Yeah, I mean, That's you know, correct. another example I like to give, I just reading about him the other day because I read about these old players. Like the guy that won the greatest lefty of all time, Grover Cleveland Alexander, won 437 games. I think he got like 91% of the vote or something like that. Yeah, yeah but thing thing is, Eric, more recently, it's been more predictive. I mean, you could got you got Maddox, you got Griffey Jr., you got uh, Jeter and, and, uh, and, and, and Mariano. They all were in over nearly at much higher than 95. So I think more recently, the tremendous stars have been more consistent. Historically, there was a bit of a uh, you know, squabble over these things. By the like way, Williams, my guess was I mean, pretty good. Matt just, Matt, just posted, Matt just posted it in the chat. It looks, I guess, 15, I think it's 18 players. So I'm off by a little bit, but not by a large magnitude. I think Adi's suggesting that they're disproportionately modern, where that's right. it's a little bit less personality driven. All right, so... What kind of predictions do you have? These things are going to be announced within the hour, within the hour. This is going to be disclosed. So last minute predictions for what happens. All right. Um, you know, even though I just said the most likely prediction is, is uh, no one. And although one is more, one is the most likely, but I don't know which. So I guess I really should say, um, go with the single most likely, which is neither make it. I guess I'll just do that. Even though I do think uh, one of them is going to make, I just don't know whom. <laughs> very statistical, very probabilistic of you, buddy. <laughs> All right. I oh, think, uh, I, I, I guess this is, this is guesswork. I think probably the Audi already got the most likely outcome, but I'll, I'll just, you know, guess that Rollin makes it and Helton does not. Yeah. Roland, I was, if if I had to pick one Scott Rowan, I would pick the same as Shane, because I think there is a bias against DH like players. Mm-hmm. And I think those people will hide their ballots. They won't, uh, they won't say that. So if I had to guess one, I would guess Scott Rowland, but I'm actually going to guess both. I think they'll both make it. Oh my! I think it's a very weak year. I think these guys are going to capitalize on the weakest year I've seen in a long, 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 long time. And I think they'll both get in. How many Just, more years do each of them have, by the way? This is uh, Helton's fifth year, and yeah. it is Rowland's, I think, sixth or seventh year. It's his they, sixth. They so 10? they both have they get... four or five more years, respectively. Okay. Okay. Well, let me just say, you're asking a good trajectory question, which Adi's talked about in years past. Given this, both of them will likely make yeah, the Hall of they'll Fame. They'll make it, for sure. No yeah, one's, ever gotten, no yeah, one's yeah. ever gotten this percentage. We don't know what their final numbers are going to be, but no one's ever gotten like 70% and not made it, except for, um, oh, I can't I think of his name, the bloody sock guy from the Red Sox. Yeah, I was going to say Schilling kind of went. But Schilling I mean, would be the only guy because he actually took off. himself out in the yeah. last year because he didn't want to be it. He said, don't vote for me. But Schilling would be the only person that ever exceeded 70% and didn't get in. You're saying at this point in the in the in the run in the fifth or sixth year, well, they still even in the seventh or eighth year, those guys yeah. eventually get in, and Schilling was the only one that didn't. Okay, all right, guys. In the last two minutes here, let's also go on record for our Super Bowl matchup. We've got the two NFL championship games, the conference championship games this weekend. San Francisco's coming into our very own Philadelphia, and Cincinnati's going to Kansas City. Who do you have in those games? Who do you think we're going to be looking at when the Super Bowl rolls around two weeks from now? I think it's going to be uh, Philadelphia against Kansas City in the Super Bowl. I think mm. Kansas City is going to win. Mm. 
Just I'll take Philadelphia and the Bengals. I think the Bengals are going to win the game. I would have picked Kansas City with a healthy Mahomes, but um, I will take Philadelphia. Given the seven and a half points, that Massey P, but they can't overcome four points in that game. So I'm going to take Philadelphia and the Bengals. I will do, I'm going to take Philadelphia and and uh, and Kansas City simply because aren't they? That just makes sense to me. There are there are the number one seeds. You're yeah. they're they're the better rested. And I would I, I, I would be I'm I'm with who was it was it was Eric saying no it was Shane I'm sorry I've already forgotten I would take the Chiefs if Mahomes was full strength I'm going to go Bengals and I'm going to be the only one who goes against the hometown Eagles and take the Niners I don't have a very good reason for this one way or the other other than I have a slight nostalgic pining oh that for a, uh, a Niners Bengals Super Bowl. A Niners Bengals there that would be pretty fun not gonna lie. We saw, I thought we saw. cheering for the Eagles, but I, that would be pretty fun. All right. Well, listen, that has been uh, another two hours here. It's a fun time of year. We've only got a little bit of football left in front of us. So soak it up. Soak up these two conference championship games. We'll come back and talk about the Super Bowl matchup this time next week. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks to Matty Dats, the boss band, for making this thing run. For Dion Simpkins, our associate producer, many thanks. Utterly dependent on you, Dion. Appreciate all you do. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. We greatly appreciate y'all hanging with us, especially here to the end of the show. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.